fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. On FM Los 102.3 FM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Today we have Mr. Michael Butterfield, me and the co-host. Hi, Al. Well, I'm glad to be here today. We have a great guest. Yeah. It's a noir world, as they say. So uh, today joining us from uh, a lot of people will know him from TCM, as well as a lot of his books, perhaps. Who knows? But uh, we're thrilled to have him. So Mr. Eddie Muller, thank you for being here. It is my pleasure, guys, so far. We'll, we'll see how it goes, but so far, <laughs> yeah, it's a pleasure. Uh-huh. I always say that when they say, well, it's a pleasure to be here, and I say, well, see that. See if you say that at the end. <laughs> you, never, you never know. Well, Eddie, you've had, you've had quite the, uh, the life. I, I, I listened to a video cast sort of thing that you had done, and I relate to a lot of what you, you say through there, and I have to say that I've had a lot of similar things happen to me. But So when you were younger you had no idea you were going to end up in this noir world so to speak like writing the books and doing the tcm and all that stuff this this isn't like a planned future for you when you were young no no not at all originally i wanted to be a comic book artist a a writer and artist and i i was a pretty fair artist in my youth and uh i don't know i still may be i just don't have time to do it (laughs) Uh, but, but then I knew I wanted to be, I wanted to make films and I wanted to write. So I guess you could say I was, I I fancied myself a storyteller at all times, but then I ended up being, um, a journalist, a news reporter and a magazine writer and all this stuff. And then it wasn't until I was almost 40 years old that I said, you know, I really, I, I have to write a book. That's, that's like a goal for me. And, and then I did that. And then one thing happened after another and, Everything took this weird, wonderful turn where um, one of those first books that I wrote, Dark City, The Lost World of Film Noir, ended up leading me into programming film festivals based on the book. And then incrementally, it led towards this gig I now have at TCM, hosting the movies. And somewhere in there, I, I created a nonprofit foundation to rescue and restore films that were at risk of being lost. So, yeah, it's like I had one kind of life story up till I was almost 40, and then since then it's it's gone in, in an unexpected and, and really great direction. Yeah, I, I, I find that really intriguing. The, um, so when you, when you got into the noir, I, you couldn't have had the confidence that it was going to go anywhere, or did you? It was no, there was absolutely no expectation of anything. It was like I, I just, uh, I had written a book called Grindhouse, The Forbidden World of Adults Only Cinema. That was my first published book. St. Martin's published that back in 1997. And it was really a fun book to put together. And, and then I said, yeah, but the only problem with it was the movies were really not very good. <laughs> and so, uh, but it, it did well enough that my editor at St. Martin's said, well, 
what else do you want to do? And I said, well, how about a book about movies that I actually like? And that was how Dark City came about. And and then it just it just snowballed from there. And honestly, guys, there was no expectation when I wrote Dark City that it was going to lead to much of anything, really. I mean, there weren't a lot of film noir books out then. There were there were others, you know, by by colleagues that I now know very well. That was it. It was it was the fact that the uh, the book was a springboard to doing film festivals in which I then got up and hosted the movies, that's when things started to change a little bit. And then the creation of the nonprofit foundation um, earned me a tremendous amount of credibility in the film community with archivists and, and scholars and people uh, who had a lot invested in these movies. And, um, and, and then, like I said, just little by little, there, there was no grand design. It was, it literally was one foot in front of the other. Well, if this worked, then maybe we can do this. You know, when I say the next thing you know, I mean, this was not an overnight thing. This is what, you know, when you look at social media and the way the world works today, where it's like you have a 15-year-old being an influencer on social media, <laughs> it, it took me, you know, 25 years to get to where I can consider myself some kind of influencer in a way. And, you know, that's just to get people to watch old movies. That's that's my area of influence. Right. And I have to say that, that I think that's one of the key things. And when you um, are into this restoring of old films and stuff, how did that happen for you? Like, that seems to be a – I think it's an important thing. It's a really important thing, oh, yeah. and I'm glad, glad you're there and doing it, and and I think this is great. How did you fall into that? Well, it's interesting. Like I said, every there was no master plan here. I, I can tell you exactly how that happened. I wanted to show um, the film Detour, the 1945 noir classic Detour, at one of my film festivals, and it was really, really hard to find a print of the film. I ended up having to get it from the Cinémathèque Française in Paris, and it had French subtitles on it. But because I had written this book, um, the director's daughter, Ariane Ulmer, reached out to me and said, how would you like to meet Anne Savage, right, who was the star of the film? And Anne was living in, in Hollywood at that time, and she was, you know, 77 years old or something. And I just realized, like, wow, this is really great. The book is opening these doors. But then when I tried to find the films to show, to honor the people who made them, I realized in many cases it was extremely difficult. And so I kind of committed myself to using the profits from the festivals to find movies that were otherwise unavailable and, and to restore them. So... Um, I had absolutely no background in this. I had no, no inherent understanding of how it all worked, but I suddenly found myself in a position to make it work. So that, that was how it all started. And then I'd say, well, I want to show this movie. And I just refused to accept no for an answer. And when studio, the people who ran the vaults at the studios said, well, we don't have a print of that, you know, uh, I said, well, how can that be? You know, and and honestly, you have to convince them that they can still make money with this stuff. That that was how I I did it, right? And when I had one film festival, that was great. But then when I added more satellite festivals, I could actually call up the head of distribution or the head of the archive at a studio and say, I can get you 10, 10 play dates for this movie that 
is just otherwise sitting there on the shelf doing nothing. I can get you 10 dates for it, right? And th this was back before streaming and all of that, right? So this, I, I kind of got in just under the wire because I doubt that looking at the way they make money today, they would find the money I'm pulling in from, you know, 10 different bookings around the country would be literally a drop in the bucket to these people today. But back then it was like, why not do it? Right? I mean, why not? It's an asset. Let's let's get something out of it. And and then by doing that it, it garnered media attention and then all of a sudden there were, you know, DVDs and Blu-rays and all and I was part of this um you know, the promotion of the genre to where people said, Well, we can put this stuff out and, and we actually can make money with it. And and then eventually TCM sent emissaries, shall we say, to uh, to a couple of my film festivals, and they said, wow, look at the audience this guy is drawing. I mean, it's this is who we want watching TCM, because it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily who you expected. My audiences tend to skew a little younger. Um, they're very diverse. It's absolutely a gender split right down the middle. They said, this, this is really great. And, and I have always said that film noir is the gateway drug to classic cinema. Because it, it's it's the mo film noir movies are the ones that teenagers and kids in their twenties uh, will watch a film noir movie and get more out of it than say they were watching a screwball comedy or a or a musical or something from the thirties. You know, they're they're going to relate probably more to Double Indemnity than they are to Forty Second Street. So that's uh, and, and then what, and then once you hook them and they realize how how marvelous the world of classic cinema is. Then, then their purview expands, and then they, they'll want to watch everything. At least that's the hope. Yeah. <laughs> well, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into film noir? I, I remember seeing an interview where you were talking about how your father was a, a boxing writer for the San Francisco Examiner. Correct. And that when you started hanging out with him and going to the, the gym or to the events, uh, that's when you started to feel like you were in the – noir world with all these characters could you talk about that a little bit yeah that that's a an accurate assessment <laughs> um yeah it's funny the the characters that i would meet in film noir movies i had sort of already met in real life <laughs> <laughs> only older versions of them because that by the time i met these guys who were in their prime in the in the 40s and 50s they were older men uh, who were kind of bitterly complaining about stuff, as older men do. Uh, but it was fabulous, because to me, watching a film like The Setup or Champion or Body and Soul or something like that from the 40s um, was like watching my dad's home movies, in a sense. You know? <laughs> like, like, oh, so this is what his his world was like. you know? Because I was born in 1958, so I was, which was kind of late, in his life. I think my dad was already 50 something years old uh, or more when I was born. So um, I, I was intrigued by these films that sort of showed the world the way it was when my father was in his prime. And so the, everything about that era appealed to me. The, the look of it, the, the slang, the, the language, the hard-boiled American language, um, that is, you know, reached its peak in these movies. All of that stuff just fascinated me, and it was a, it was very much uh, it was my counterculture thing because when I was a kid, 
you know, the counterculture was the culture, right? I mean, it was it was pop art and Peter Max illustrations and, you know, all, all of this stuff that was happening in San Francisco. It was the summer of love and it was, you know, Quicksilver messenger service and all this, the Jefferson Airplane. Mm-hmm. But but I was into these old movies, and it was like, wow, this is really. And then sometimes there was overlap. You guys might remember that, you know, Humphrey Bogart had a, a counterculture thing that happened yeah. in the in the late '60s, early '70s. He was kind of adopted by that generation, as you know, a t- tough guy, and they they would imitate the way he smoked. You know, don't Bogart that joint, man. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so I, I had this interesting mix of influences when I was growing up, but the the noir stuff, as I came to call it, right, I mean, that whole era, that, that really appealed to me. Well, and I also read that you used to cut class to watch uh, Dialing for Dollars. What are some <laughs> of the movies that really uh, captured your imagination then and your fascination? Oh, man, it was... Uh... I always credit Thieves Highway, a movie called Thieves Highway that was made at 20th Century Fox in 1949, starring Richard Conti and Valentina Cortesa, uh, as like the one that really captured my imagination because it was set in San Francisco, but it was a San Francisco that no longer existed. So what I was seeing on film was gone. And and to me, that that kind of had a profound impact because I would go downtown to the Embarcadero Center, which was big apartment buildings that had been built where the old produce market used to be, which is where the film is set. And just that whole idea that, wow, the movies preserved something that is now gone. And and that has always stuck with me. So I find that even, you know, that first book I mentioned, Grindhouse, The Forbidden World of Adults-Only Cinema, that was kind of the same exploration I was doing because by the time I came to write that book the video cassette recorder had been invented and nobody went out in public to watch a quote-unquote dirty movie (laughs) or or an adults only film right you did it at home because you could rent them now in video stores and things and so I said what a fascinating story that 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 was at one point that was a public activity that going out to see uh, you know, whatever it might be. I mean, at the time I was growing up, it was stuff like, you know, behind the green door and movies like that. You had to actually go out in public and watch that movie with other people in a theater. And and that fascinated me. And so that was the basis of my first book. And then all along, that's kind of been my my interest is like telling people, look, this is how we got here. You know, don't just accept that what you get today is the way it always was, because there's a fascinating story about how we got to this point. Hope that makes sense. Well, yeah. You know, but so when each one of your books that you've written and and gone through the process of, of putting it together and getting it published, when you look back at that, can you see a change in your own self? Did it do something for you with each book that you lived through, so to speak? Oh, wow, that's an interesting question. Um, Yes, I know what each book did for me. (laughs) Uh, There's a book that I wrote after Dark City called Dark City Dames, which was about six actresses who were synonymous with film noir. I'm not so embarrassed talking about this book anymore because it's been out of print for a while, but I'm I'm working on a new edition of it that'll, that'll come out in a year and a half or so. 
so I, so I can talk about it again because people, when I did mention it, they'd say, well, how do I get it? Where do I find it? And it's like, well, you're going to have to pay like $400 for it on eBay or something. <laughs> Uh, but that book was important to me because it changed everything for me because I got to meet the women who were in these movies and talk to them as actual people. And so half the book is about them as movie stars and half the book is about them as just women trying to deal with this weird way they made a living. And, and that was a profoundly, um, it had a profound effect on me in the sense that I, I really came away from that a different person. My attitude towards the movie business, my attitude towards women in general, was very much informed by these six actresses who were so kind and generous and and open in sharing their life stories that that, that was a significant uh, book. Writing that did, in fact, change me. And then I always try, you know, e even though I'm writing a lot about film noir, I try to take a different approach to everything because, you know, like right now, just the other day, uh, this children's book that I did came out and, you know, I, I just really, really wanted to write a children's book to see if, and I consider it part of the overall thing that I do, right? It's not like, what are you going to do next? Oh, you know, I better cash in by writing a children's book. My attitude was simply, you know, if you're good, if if you, you want young people to watch old movies, you have to make the connection with them at a very young, very impressionable age, because kids today have more stuff coming at them faster than at any time in human history. Right. So if if that four year old kid gets an iPad in his hands and he's on the Internet before he has a chance to actually read a children's book where you turn the pages and you kind of study the art for a while is going to entirely change the way they perceive the world, right? They're either going to have the patience to, to develop an imagination of their own, or they're just going to be bombarded with this information and, and just be a receptor and that's it. So I wanted to do a children's book to get them used to the idea that, look, there's a, there's a visual approach to this kind of story, right? It's a it's a detective story, but it's in black and white. And the whole idea was that if they got used to black and white imagery and they accepted it as something kind of normal, then when they see, when they happen by TCM on television, they won't say, what's wrong with that? Why Why is there no color? They'll say, oh, this is like the book that I had that I liked so much, you know? So that that was entirely my ulterior motive for doing this book was to get kids used to this kind of imagery so that when they saw it in movies, they would accept it and not reject it. What's the title of that book? It's called uh, Kitty Farrell. That's the detective is a cat. Kitty Farrell and the Case of the Marshmallow Monkey. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yes, that is a play on the multi-story. Today's movies as compared to the old movies now i don't i don't want to you know bash movie makers or what's going on today in the world but when you look at some of the old movies and noir and some of, and some of what happened how do you analyze that it's so much better is it because of like what you were saying um you have to take more time think about the characters think about you have to have imagination you have to have some sort of conscious awareness is not just all flash 
wild guns and bombs and all that sort of stuff, like action, like what you see in a lot of the new movies. Um, what about noir is it that, that is so, I don't know, let's say uh, attractive? The thing about older films that really separates them from modern films is I really think that, number one, um, they're more, um, they didn't have to be as naturalistic as people demand from movies today. Today, every, people will only accept characters on screen that remind them of themselves. Like, like the, that guy, you know, is talking strangely, blah, blah, blah. Back in, back in the 40s, since this was an outgrowth of the theater, there was a whole different style to the way people performed on films. And that changed over time. That's one of the hurdles that people have to get over when they watch an old movie. It's like, this seems weird. These people aren't acting like the way people really act. Well, that wasn't, that didn't have to be a thing back then. Plus, the stories were generally better written. There, there was a real interest in how you structure a story. It was written for an audience by people who were, they weren't screenwriters yet. They were newspaper people. They were playwrights. They were novelists. Today, there are people whose entire approach to writing a film comes from just watching television or watching films. So they're just doing that. The older films, there was a little more worldly, the, the, just the writers had more assembled about them because they weren't able to draw on movies because the movies hadn't really been made yet that were going to influence everybody. Uh, the appeal of noir is very simply that these are very dramatic, elemental stories. Most noir films are about people who do the wrong thing and what the consequences are going to be. So it's it's something that's always interesting to a viewer. Like, would I do that? You know, would I would I rob a bank for this woman? I mean, what would how, what would have to happen for me to get to that place, right? Plus, they're they're done so artistically in such an artificial way. It always kills me when. A lot of people say, oh, film noir were those gritty, realistic films from the 40s. And it's like, not really. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they don't look like the world that I live in. Uh, and, and everybody sounds much tougher and much more inventive with their language in the movies than they did in real life. Uh, but there's just a beautiful theatricality to the whole thing, to the lighting and the set design and you know, it's it's just fantastic. It's a it, it's I have often called it the anti myth of Hollywood, right? And, and the the thing was, don't worry, tomorrow's another day. Everything's going to turn out all right. We're going to live happily ever after. And then noir came along and said, wrong. <laughs> um, it doesn't it doesn't have to end well. And we're going to tell you the stories of the people who do the bad things, and then they end up, you know, face down and in the gutter. <laughs> yeah, and you said once that uh, a good way to tell if you're watching a noir film is if the protagonist is actually a good guy or not. Well, well, that's my that's when I talk about hardcore noir. The the people doing the wrong thing are the protagonists. So I think of movies like uh, Double Indemnity and The Postman Always Rings Twice and something like Out of the Past. It's like they they know what they're doing is wrong, and they do it anyway for our entertainment. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was going to say, and you don't mind me setting up this question a little bit for you. Um, you know, I used to think that I wasn't really into film noir that much. And then the COVID lockdown came, and I had a lot of free time on my hands, and I watched a lot of Turner Classic movies. I watched a lot of your uh, commentaries. 
and uh, also a movie uh, channel called Movies that does um, film noir on Thursdays and Sunday nights, so it's kind of sandwiched with this four-day period. Right. After listening to a lot of your commentaries, I realized I've always been into film noir. <laughs> my, my favorite movie is The Third Man. Yeah. And yeah. I love Strangers on a Train and right. The Window. But then there's also things like Get Carter mm -hmm. and Blood Simple or To Live and Die in L.A. and 52 Pickup and uh, Narrow Margin, which are all, you know, I guess what you call neo-noir. Right. Noir is so influential, but it seems to be almost invisible to people. They don't, no one seems to even realize it's there. Do you feel that it's undervalued and unappreciated and, and why and what could we do about that? <laughs> Uh, it's a in very interesting observation. I, there, there is a continuum at work here. So I always describe, people say, what is noir? And I say, well, there's, there are many ways you can approach that question. I'm a writer primarily, so I tend to look at it from a writer's point of view, and I think of noir as like hardcore noir is stories where the protagonists are the bad guys. Then there's noir style where it can be a detective story like The Big Sleep or a, or a cop movie like The Big Heat. And it looks like noir, but it is still upholding the good guys versus the traditional bad guys storyline, right? Film noir was an organic artistic movement that happened not just in Hollywood, but kind of all around the world in the mid-20th century. And it was generated by the artists themselves. There was, these were not the biggest money makers of any year that they were made. I mean, there were successful noir films like Double Indemnity and The Postman Always Rings Twice and Gilda. You know, the, these were successful movies. But by and large, noir films were not that expensive to produce. So they reliably turned a profit for the studios during a period where they were regrouping after World War II to figure out what was going to make money. And, and noir films became prevalent because they didn't cost a lot to make. So every studio decided, well, we'll make eight or ten of these a year. And the next thing you know, there was like a real movement happening. The cinematographers were looking at each other's work and saying, wow, look at what John Alton's doing. I want to shoot a thing like that. The writers were inspiring each other, like, man, I love the language in this film, or I love the fact that it didn't have to end happily. I want to write one of those. Then the actors got into the mix, and, and it was like, I've, I, I'm stuck playing heroes. And Tyrone Powers says, I want to make Nightmare Alley instead and play the most wicked charlatan in the movies, right? And so, and so it became this very, very organic thing. And then over time those movies influenced other people. And then, and then it became what started to be called neo-noir. And then, as you pointed out, movies like Get Carter. I mean, what is the morality of Get Carter? I mean, it's impossible yeah, to yeah. say, right? I, know. I mean, he's there to avenge his brother and all that, but, you know, he's, he's a bad guy too, right? Mm -hmm. But he's the guy you empathize with in the, in the story. And, and those things became very influential. I mean, the Cone brothers know this stuff inside and out. Yeah. Chris Nolan knows his noir inside and out. And, you know, I, I, it's just funny. I always, it amuses me like when I do the festivals and things and I'll have 10 minutes or something with some big shot filmmaker and we'll immediately start talking about noir. You know, I mean, I, I was talking to Steven Spielberg recently 
And he like wanted to ask all these questions about the big sleep, you know, what about this? And what happens in this, you know, it, it's just, it's ingrained in a whole generation of filmmakers. Absolutely. Yeah. There's so many movies that it's influenced that you can't even keep track of them. And it was interesting too, when I was watching another uh, commentary with you where you were talking about a uh, warning shot with David Jansen. Yes. yes. And uh, you brought up the fact that even something like the fugitive, the TV series is a very noirish uh, series, it's heavily influenced on that. It, it's to me that's the ultimate. Well, there are two two movie uh, series that I think are just completely noir. The Fugitive is definitely one. Wrongly accused man, man accused of killing his wife, goes on the run, and every week he's like, you know, there's a new show where he pulls into some town and he's he becomes like the the trigger. For all these dramas in the town where he goes, it's just, I love that show. That was a great, great show. How many great actresses appeared on that show? Oh, yeah. Holy cow. Did David Jansen have a great job? <laughs> yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and, and then I also think the more recent show that to me was totally noir was Breaking Bad. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because what could be a more perfect noir setup than a than a meek, mild, high school chemistry teacher who becomes a drug kingpin. That's like a classic noir story arc. And boy, they, they got everything out of it, Incl including some spinoff series yeah. that were pretty good, yeah. too. <laughs> well, and I just want to mention, too, that I thought you did a great uh, impression of David Jansen in that commentary that you did with Ben Mankiewicz. <laughs> I was like, that was well, great. He, he, David Jansen was always looking like he was, something was bothering him his gastrointestinal tract, you know? <laughs> yeah. Very minimal, minimalist approach to dialogue yes, very and much facial so. expressions, but they had so much power because of that. Well, he was very, uh, David Jansen was very, see, I love tracking stuff like this because Jansen, who was like emblematic of an actor from the 1960s, was clearly inspired by the actors from the 1940s because he was doing Bogart and he was doing his own version of John Garfield and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. And it, it, that was abundantly apparent to me later on i didn't know that when i watched the shows when they first appeared on tv because you know i'm old enough to remember you know when the fugitive was on and watching it and i remember the big deal like you know that that was at that point that was the highest rated tv show of all time was yeah. the last episode of the fugitive right mm -hmm. you're going to find out who actually did it and do they get the one-armed man is there a one-armed man you know <laughs> I, I remember reading at that time that Jan jansen was pretty funny he had this great thing where he said he wanted the show to end with he's uh you know he's a free man at the end and he walks off into the uh at the beach and then he unscrews his fake arm and throws it into the surf. <laughs> that was going to be the last shot of the series that he wanted. Didn't work out. That I put my vote in for that. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> what, what's your favorite, or do you have a favorite noir movie? Well, I, I say that it's in a lonely place because oh, wow. you do you do tend to get asked this a lot. Uh, so I figure I better have one. So I always say, you know, Thieves Highway is the one that kind of got me started. And then I say in a lonely place because it's the one I can watch over and over and over again. And I always get something fresh out of it because it, I find it to be a, a lot of people quibble and they say, but that's not really a film noir. I mean, it does, it's not a film noir in the sense that out of the past is a film noir or double indemnity is a film noir. 
but um, it, it's more like a Hollywood drama about a, a you know a writer who has issues with his temper and all this. But yet, I find that movie so incredibly adult in the way it deals with all these issues that aren't typical of noir, right? Um, thwarted ambition, uh, it, you know, the volatility of artists, like art, which I find to be a very, very timely issue. Because if you know this movie, you know. You know that he's a Hollywood screenwriter who's fallen on hard times because his uh, reputation precedes him as a hothead and nobody wants to work with him. And then the movie is about him falling in love with this woman who kind of rekindles his artistic aspirations. And while he is able to once again create art, all of the things inherent in his character that are self-destructive ruin the relationship that he has with this woman. And that's kind of a profound subject, right, for for a movie. And it deals with it so beautifully um, that every time I watch the movie, I get something more out of it in the in the way the scenes play out. And Bogart's just incredible in the movie. And so, you know, I, I have no qualms in saying that's my favorite noir film. However, I w if you ask me what movies would you recommend people watch if they don't understand noir and want to get a grasp of it as quickly as possible, I would always say Double Indemnity and Out of the Past are the two definitive noir films. Yeah, I never really used to appreciate Humphrey Bogart until I started watching a lot of the Turner Classic stuff. And I have to say, I feel ashamed it took me this long to appreciate him. He was fantastic. Absolutely. He's and and back then, it's a very very tricky thing for actors because if you're going to be a star, you have to have a quality that you carry with you through every role. You have to kind of be identifiable as that person, right? Like I I want to see Bogart do the Bogart thing, right? I want to see John Garfield or Rita Hayworth be that person that I I that I relate to. But then they have to be able to play various shades of that. And Bogart was great because, you know, for every Sam Spade or Rick Blaine in Casablanca that he played, you know, he saw to it that he would play a, a despicable character mm -hmm. or, or, you know, you know, the Kane mutiny is, is a totally different kind of Bogart character. In a Lonely Place is a different Bogart character. The guy he plays in The Desperate Hours is oh, yeah. is certainly not the typical Humphrey Bogart role. And and then, you know, he does comedy really well, too. If you watch Beat the Devil, uh, you know, or We're No Angels or something like that, he's a, he can be very funny as well. Desperate Hours was the movie that I watched first that kind of, changed me altogether. I was like, we didn't realize, I always thought of him, you know, as playing that detective kind of role. But right. seeing him in that movie, I was just blown away by how vicious and awful he was. Yep. Same. He, he could do it. <laughs> you know, and, and lately I've, I've noticed, um, personally, I, I like a lot of the old movies and shows, and I listen to a lot of the old radio shows. I mean, Alan Ladd had a lot of impact I didn't realize how much, especially I've been listening to Box 13, but of course he, he kind of, you know, kind of set off Noir in a way with some of his movies. What's your thought on Alan Ladd? Alan Ladd fascinates me because he was a great star. He certainly, he was not an actor in Bogart's league at all, but he was a great star who just the camera loved him. And then when he was with Veronica Lake, they had this amazing 
chemistry and yes he he was terrific you know this gun for hire was certainly one of the essential early noir films and then he did the glass key and the blue dahlia uh calcutta all kinds of really interesting films but for some weird reason he didn't age for another generation the way bogart did or the way john garfield did it, it today it's it amazes me that there are missing Alan Ladd movies, like Saigon, the last movie that he made with Veronica Lake. It's like, it's next to impossible to see that movie. And for, for years and years, Universal Pictures had buried the version of The Great Gatsby that Alan Ladd made in 1949. And if anybody was born to play Jay Gatsby, it was Alan Ladd. Because, as and I've talked to his son, David, about this, and... He said, this, this is my father. I mean, Jay Gatsby is my dad. He was a, you know, a, a guy who was a simple person who was, who was overcompensating, trying to convince people, uh, uh, social stations above him that he belonged there. So, you know, and, and that was Jay Gatsby. And, and that was also Alan Ladd's story. And I, it, it's weird that his, his movies just, uh, aside from a few, they're just very difficult to see anymore. I, I don't know why that is. I don't know why the public hasn't embraced him the way it has some of the other older stars. Public's been a little bit weird in the last ten years, so <laughs> <laughs> we just we, yeah we just don't know what's going on with the people. So you know, hey, <laughs> I'm just leaving that one, boy. But my mother named me after Alan Ladd. 62. Wow. How about that? Yeah. So there was something nobody cares, but I do. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's talk about your Noir Bar because that's your book here. Um, what can people expect out of that book? <laughs> uh, people can expect uh, 50 classic Noir cocktails along with stories uh, that tie the drinks in. To particular movies. Now, I I was this was kind of a no-brainer when <laughs> it's very fun. The publishing house after I did my revised and expanded edition of Dark City, which came out a couple of years ago, I guess three years ago. Um, they said, "Wow, this was great. Do you want to do a follow-up?" And I I pitched hard for a revised and expanded version of my Dark City Dames book and. My editors listened patiently as I gave the big pitch, the big impassioned pitch. And then she said, huh, how about a cocktail book? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Why didn't I think of that, right? So So the book, either the cocktails in the book are in the movies in question, or they, I am taking a movie and it's inspired me to pair it with a certain cocktail, or in about 10 cases, I created the cocktail to make it fit with either a performer or a specific movie. Like the Sailor Beware is a cocktail I created that was for the lady from Shanghai. And it was, all of it was created specifically to, to match up with that movie. Um, so it's great fun. And having been a bartender, I mean, it was, um, I really love the whole approach to sit down. Here's a story about what you're about to drink. Let me make you a cocktail and I'll tell you a story. That's what a good bartender does, right? So uh, I was happy to do it on the page. 
and and that the publisher running press was so gung ho about it that they really spared no expense in making this a a really good good looking book. I wanted to ask you about your books, uh, The Distance and Shadow Boxer, um, about the character that was inspired by your father. Uh, yes, uh, that was my goal. I knew before I turned 40, I wanted to write a novel. And uh, I almost made it under that deadline. Um, but yeah, The Distance was my first novel. Uh, it came out in 2002. So that was a while ago now. And it was it was great fun. I always uh, I always say that was the book that I feel like I was born to write. I mean, all the other stuff is all well and good, but but only I could write that book because of my my bird's eye view of my father and his character and his world. And I realized there really weren't a lot of other people that had this that had this same perspective or or the insiders. I could be an insider and looking at it from outside at the same time. And so um, it was a very important book for me to write. And I also, like like when I was talking earlier about Thieves Highway, I really wanted to capture San Francisco the way it used to be in the mid-20th century because I could see at the time I was writing the book that all of that was changing and that it would it was going to be lost eventually. So that that was a a big part of why I wrote the book. So as you guys can see, um, preservation is a big part of what I do, whether it's preserving films or writing a novel that's to preserve the feel of the city uh, as it was in the mid 20th century when, when I wasn't even alive, mind you, but it's so it's a kind of an artistic interpretation of the city. Uh, but that's why I say I had to write this book because I was in that, that exact spot to see what was there and how it was changing. And now how do people find you? Do you do social media? Are you in the modern world? Uh, I am in the modern world, but getting sicker of it every day. (laughs) 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 I I can relate. I, I follow you on Facebook, so I do appreciate those. Yeah. Okay. So I am on Facebook. Uh, I, I I don't even know what you call it anymore now that that guy has taken over, you know, what, what used to be. I mean, we call sim- it excre- excrement. Excrement, okay. <laughs> I mean, how symbolic is it that you have this cute little blue bird that everybody can recognize, and this guy comes in and, like, stamps a big X over it to, to rebrand. <laughs> it's like, what, what could be worse than that, right? It's a brilliant move, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, but I, I am on those things, and, um, you know, I mean, I'm on TCM. I somehow, yeah, I somehow seem to get found <laughs> by a yeah. lot of people. It's not hard to find me. I mean, my website is, is eddiemuller.com, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm out there. Uh, yeah. this, this, I guess in a, this weekend, I don't know when this show is airing, but, uh, I'm going to be in Detroit this weekend doing a Noir City Film Festival there. And then, uh, I'll be in Silver Spring, Maryland. We call it Noir City, DC. It's outside of DC in Silver Spring, Maryland at the AFI Theater. I do that in, um, in October, uh, October 13th to the 15th. I'll be hosting a film festival there and, um, it's, it's great. And one, one of the really fun things is that, um, all of this has expanded kind of internationally. 
in late October, I'll be going to Mexico, to Morelia, Mexico, for a film festival in which I'll be presenting Argentinian film noir that, that I have preserved through the Film Noir Foundation. And then uh, I was just talking yesterday with some people in France about doing a noir festival in Paris next year. So uh, it, it's great that this uh, actually extends beyond national borders and that uh, and it's a two-way street because I, they're happy when I bring American films overseas and I am happy when I'm introduced to foreign films that are noir. And uh, it, it's it's been a wonderful education. So this is, you know, to go back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show, it's it's very, very gratifying that none of this was by plan. You know, it just kind of all came together. I laugh all the time with my uh, my colleague, Alicia Malone, because I have so much, I'm just massive respect for her because she came from Australia uh, to America with like $500 in her pocket. And she, and on the plane over, she had a journal and she wrote in it, you know, what are my goals? And one of those goals was host TCM with a question mark. And, <laughs> and I thought, imagine that coming from a totally different country with no money and, and you actually make that happen. That that's incredible, but that's not my story. I, I never entertained the idea of being a host on TCM ever until the day they called me and asked me if I'd do it. Well, I, I will say, you know, that, um, of course, we'll have your website and books up on ours as well so people can find it. But uh, but the non-planning means that it came from something that you wanted to do. And, and there's people out there that really appreciate uh, what you do, how you do it, oh, yeah. and keeping it all alive. And I think uh, sometimes... We get lost in that, and you might not realize it, you know, doing doing all your work and not really being around. But we, we really do. There's out, out there, there's people that you don't know that kind of go, wow, that's really cool. And it means a lot, especially in a unhinged world, because, uh, you know, I'm writing in that period right now doing some work, but both of us do true, true crime or nonfiction. So, but I'm finding myself watching almost 24-7 old stuff, whether it's series, TV, movies, everything, because there's a sense of security to it. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. Maybe it's just my, you know, getting old, too. But uh, there is some sort of security to that. And um, anyway, to make it short, we really appreciate all the work that you do, and uh, we're glad you're doing it. Oh, yes. Thank you so much, Alan. I I appreciate that. And I I know exactly what you're talking about. And Yes, the fact that I didn't have a plan, it's like at a certain point I realized I, I just I care about how I spend my time, and it's always to me more about time than it is about money. It's like if I'm gonna I write a book or something because I really want to spend my time doing that. I don't really think about the end result before I get the work done, right? I mean, because to me that just doesn't make sense, and I know there are a lot of people that are like, well, why would I spend the time writing a book, two years to write a book, if it's only going to sell X number of copies? And my answer is because at the end of two years, you've got a book that you've written. That's right. <laughs> right? I mean, that's <laughs> and, and nobody can take that away, right? Uh, but your other observation is just spot on, that how interesting is it that these movies that we're talking about were actually considered 
in some areas a public menace back mm -hmm. in the day <laughs> because they were exposing yeah. things about the culture that we didn't want to believe, right? That the, the cops are corrupt and the politicians are no good. They're, you know, they're, and, and now people, I hear this all the time, people watch these movies as comfort food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. we've gotten, the culture has gotten so much worse than it was back in the mid 20th century that now we look at these films that were warning flares back then and it's like, well, you know, that, that, I'll take it. I'll take that world. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, there, because there's an end result, there's a comfort to it in the fact that, yeah, you know, the people that were doing these really weird or evil or bad things, when they were exposed, they were caught and they were ruined or put in jail or killed or whatever happens. Nowadays, it seems like people are proud of doing weird and bad things. <laughs> yeah. And they're not worried about being caught and nothing happens. Like, it just sort of seems to be this other world. Like, so I think the safety in the older shows are, you know, you do the crime, you do the time. And you felt there was a, you know, there was good and evil and a, there was a result. But now in real life today, I don't really see that as happening. So I think going back in time makes it feel like, I don't know, it just seemed to be correct. Yeah, I, 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 cannot, I cannot argue with that assessment. Yeah, film noir seems to be so much about the consequences of action. Absolutely. Yeah, how far would you go in this situation? What would you do? And I think there's a lot of that key element there. And, and so we see people now, it's like, who cares? Like, I'll do whatever I need or want. There's little regard for the effect. Well, because there's no consequences and there's no shame. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. it. The shame. The shame is what blows me away. It used to be, remember how, you know, a politician got into like an affair or something like, something like, you know, they might have looked at a girl or something and it was a big deal and they'd lose their, their, their chance of winning nowadays god you can you can do almost anything and still run and still even win well you wonder when you when you see some of the things that have transpired recently and then you think back you know to like gary hart having his president <laughs> that's who i was campaign thinking of. derailed because you know this this um whatever her name donna whatever her name was you know s sat on his knee and it was like come on what what's yeah. that today? It's absolutely nothing, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's crazy, uh, and and I just don't know. So now I'm twenty four seven old stuff. It's <laughs> it's really bizarre because because I go back in the old times and and because I'm writing about a certain time, like right now I'm writing in the sixties, and so I'll turn on sixties television shows or or movies, and I follow that, and I try to get it because then you pick up things from the conversations and from and even game shows like what's my line and you see who they laugh about or what they're talking about and, I <laughs> yeah. look, and that that fills in all these blanks for me and I, I feel like I can get the dialogue correct and and then I do this but I find in the last couple of years um, even on my spare time I'm still doing the old stuff because I, I don't know I don't know if it's fear or old age or who knows well that's interesting i mean i really try to keep a balance i don't i don't reject anything out of hand you know right it's like um i mean i went and saw barbie i saw barbie i saw oppenheimer 
Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. um, I, I want to know what's going on and how people are reacting. And I also don't want to criticize anything if I haven't actually seen it. That's like, right. a, yeah. of course, yeah. I, I don't want to do that. And, and, you know, and I enjoyed Barbie. I thought it was great, you know, and I'm not going to begrudge its massive success. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't really want to detour off into this, but but it is fascinating, and I do I do think it's pretty incredible that Oppenheimer is nearing one billion dollars in ticket sales mm-hmm. for a three hour movie that is people talking about nuclear physics. I mean yeah. that's that's pretty, yeah that's pretty extraordinary, yeah. you know, and and yeah. everybody knows how it ends, you know, so it's like okay, that's that's fascinating mm-hmm. to me. You know, and and the fact that it kept going, because I, I kind of was afraid that it was a pent up thing where people were going to go see it. And then maybe the word of mouth would be there's a lot of talking for three hours, you know. But, you know, Chris Nolan really knew what he was doing. That That's I mean, I'm going to watch that movie, you know, five or six more times just to study how he paced a movie that long that has that much expository information in it and, and made it exciting and suspenseful when you know all along what's going to happen. And, and honestly, the third act of that movie is kind of a letdown, but somehow it works, you know, and uh, I'm so happy that it shows that, you know, you give people something a little different and challenge them a little bit and maybe they will show up. You know, I mean, that's the big fear is that nobody's interested anymore, that we don't have an attention span. Well, I think Oppenheimer would would show otherwise. Yeah. Right. And I think that's good. And, and I will, too. I just haven't ventured out into a lot of the theater going since COVID, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We depend on Turner Classics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, we like here. I was going to say, Eddie, just as a personal favor, maybe you could get Turner Classics to show a crappy movie once in a while so that my DVR isn't constantly filled up with your channel. <laughs> I've shown a few. I've shown a few on Noir Alley. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hear from people like, oh, my God. It's, it's funny that you say that because I really make an effort to show, because if I'm just going to show Noir, right, because uh, that's my thing mm-hmm. on the network, that's, that's my niche, um, I'm going to have to show a range of things. And sometimes I'm showing a movie and it's like, this really isn't very good. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't really like this movie, yeah. but there'll be, there'll be things about it that are interesting. And, and this is something that I've learned recently that you, I think you can only learn when suddenly you're given this platform of, you know, talking to an entire nation of viewers to watch these films is that I may say, you know, this movie really isn't very good, blah, blah, blah. And somebody will write to me and say, that's the first good movie you've shown in two months. Because <laughs> 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 everybody's taste is different, yeah. you know, and you, you really, when you're in my position, you can't be that judgmental. It's not like I'm just writing about this as a, as a scholar. Now I'm a host. Yeah. And now my job is to get people to watch and to tune in. And I can't guarantee that every movie is going to be the big sleep or out of the mm-hmm. past, right? But my job is to is to make you aware of why isn't this movie very good? Well, here's a few ideas as to what could have gone wrong here. Yeah. Uh, or even though the movie's not very good, here's something really interesting about the performers in it or 
this was a stepping stone for the director to go on to other things. I mean, I, I like to think that the people who watch TCM are in for the long haul. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you can so you can kind of play connect the dots. Like if you like this, then look for these other movies that will appear later. Um you know, and, and it's not just a one-off. Like you're going to the movies this one time, and I'm never going to go back and see that again. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's thankfully that's not the case on TV. Well, your shows are like Christmas morning. I, I love finding out what you've got next. No, I appreciate that. I appreciate that very much. Thank you. Well, there we go. So on that, we end, and uh, thank you very much, Eddie Muller. My pleasure, guys. It was, in fact, a pleasure to be here. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.